Hello, and welcome to episode one of Juror Number One. On this podcast, we'll be giving you facts from real trials with real evidence, real testimony, and at the end of it, you are going to have to decide innocent or guilty. I've changed the names so you don't Google it, you sleuths. But could you send an innocent person to jail for life or let a killer go free? The choice is yours. So this is episode number one, a murder in Wisconsin. Like most of these stories, it starts off on a beautiful late June day in sunny Madison, Wisconsin. Kathleen Smith, her friend Judy, Judy's fiance Ronnie and his brother Scott, all go out to dinner, having a great time, and they want the party to continue. So they go back to Kathleen's apartment to uh, keep the party going. Well, they all part ways, and the next morning, Judy goes to check on her friend Kathleen. Well, when she gets to Kathleen's place, she finds something very, very disturbing. Kathleen is laying face down, naked, and dead. She'd been severely beaten, raped, and strangled to death. She still had the belt of a bathrobe laying across her naked body where she lay. Judy immediately calls the cops and the police show up to start their investigation. That's when they start questioning Judy and ask her, what was she doing last night? How was she here? So she explains, and this is where she gets real honest with the police. She says that me, my fiance Ronnie and his brother Scott and Kathleen, we all went out to dinner. We had some drinks and we came back here. And we started doing a little bit of cocaine. Well, if you're telling the police straight up that you're doing cocaine, you're being pretty goddamn honest, I would say. So, they ask her who else uh, was with them. And she says her fiance Ronnie um, and, her brother, and his brother Scott. So, they start to look into... Those people, well, old Ronnie has kind of a past, see? Just a year ago, Ronnie was released from prison in New Mexico for one count of sodomy and four counts of rape. Well, that kind of piques the police interest. So, they bring Ronnie in for questioning. They also bring his brother uh, Scott in and Scott is questioned and released. But, oh, Ronnie. Ronnie's questioned about it, and he said that he was there. Yeah, of course I was there. I was there with my fiance, my brother. And, uh, yeah, we were doing cocaine. We were hanging out. But at 9.30, I left. We went back out for some more drinks, and then uh, that was it. There's no way I could have done this. But the police didn't buy it. So, Ronnie was arrested and charged with the rape and the murder 
of Kathleen Smith. But is there enough evidence? Well, the police seem to think so. They think, well, shit, this was easy, man. We've only been at this for a few hours. We already got our guy. Who else could have done it? This guy was with her earlier. He has been in prison for rape before. Seems like a slam dunk, so why in the hell would we look for any other suspect? Well... Just to add a little bit more icing on their cake, they uh, have an eyewitness now. Kathleen's neighbor tells police that around 12.30 in the morning, she saw a white car with a black top driving around the neighborhood and then parked out of sight. And she saw a man who is about five foot three, shoulder length dark hair, uh, and a slim, muscular build go into the apartment never to be seen again so they're like huh that's pretty close to Ronnie so let's send this baby to trial right so the trial of Ronnie begins and this is where you come in so the first witness for the state is the eyewitness they put her on the stand and they say they tell the jury that this woman, days after the murder, they brought our suspect, the defendant, and four other people back to the scene of the crime at night and had her pick who the murderer was. And she picked Ronnie. So, the eyewitness, out of a lineup, picks this man as the person she saw. Well... Now it's time for the defense to cross-examine. And this is pretty insane. So now it's time for the defense to cross-examine this uh, witness. Well, and this is a, a little strange. So they obviously want to discredit her statement. So they start with her first statement with the police. She said the man that she saw was five foot three, around there, shoulder length, dark hair. Okay, well, the problem was that Ronnie was over six feet tall. That's a pretty big difference. So, when they dig deeper into her uh, statement, they realize, and I've never really heard of someone doing this before, is that the police officers brought in a hypnotist, right? A hypnotist to hypnotize this eyewitness. I am praying to God that the person they brought in was someone named like the amazing Jonathan. Like that this police department has a hypnotist on retainer. Like we have a sketch artist and we have a hypnotist. Those are our two biggest expenses. So they call up Rangor the Amazing to come in and hypnotize this woman. And while she's under hypnosis, she changes her story to say that the person she saw was probably around six foot two. So under hypnosis, she changes it by almost a full foot. Here's another interesting thing that, that the defense does to uh, destroy her credibility 
is that the lineup, remember that she picked him out of a lineup? This is insane. For the lineup, they had Ronnie, their only suspect they looked into, and four other people. Well, you want to guess who those four other people were? They were police officers. And get this, wearing wigs. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Their lineup was their only suspect and then four police officers wearing wigs, which I would guess, I'm not sure if it was around back then, but probably from like Party City. Just generic black wigs. That's insane to me. You know how easy it would be for me to pick someone out of a lineup like that, even if I didn't even see the crime? Someone asked me, hey, which one of these guys do you think did it? And I would say, well, there's five of them. One of them isn't wearing a clearly fake wig. So I'd guess it was him, unless it was a group of four other guys wearing wigs robbing banks or something. Completely insane. And somehow they get this all the way to trial. But they also, the defense also brings in another witness that says... At the distance that she was at, and with the lighting that it was at that time of night, there's no way that she could have seen facial features to identify somebody. So, what are your thoughts on the eyewitness? You have a girl that lives across the street that saw this man, identified him out of a lineup, or do you believe the defense saying, well, it was guys in wigs and her. And she couldn't possibly have seen that. Well, that's on you. So, next up, it's time to dig into the forensic evidence. So, the state presents to you. This is a lot. So, it's before, really, DNA. This is 1980. 81 is when this trial is taking place. And they introduce what the police found at the scene. They found hair, they found fingerprints, they found blood, and they found semen. Well, if this was happening today, this would be an open and shut case, right? If you have all that, well, it also kind of maybe is here. So the state says when they compared hair taken from Ronnie and hair found at the scene, they said it was kind of alike. Back then it was, I mean, this would be terrifying. Back then they're like, well, he's got hair, there's hair here, it kind of looks alike, it's gotta be his, right? Well, they tell the jury that they found hair that is just like Ronnie's in that apartment. And Ronnie says, well, that's because I was there earlier. We were doing cocaine together. That's why my hair is there. They also found a fingerprint on her bong. A bong is a device used to smoke marijuana. So he says, well, yeah, that's why I was there smoking weed and doing cocaine. If you're not mad about the cocaine, what's a little weed? So that explains his fingerprint being there, according to him and the defense. But now they get into the semen 
Well, the semen found at the scene, the only thing they could identify is that that person was a type A secretor, which, don't hassle me on the science stuff, okay? So, the a type A secretor, I believe, means that in your semen, it will it, you'll be able to uh, identify the person. I don't know. You Google it. I've done enough work. <laughs> so, the murderer was a type A secretor. Well, guess what? So is Ronnie. Ronnie's a type A secretor. Yes, secretor. So, again, put yourself in this position in 1981. The state is telling you that this person, you don't know about DNA. So, this is about as strong as DNA gets back then. They say that this person's type A secretor, and so is the defendant. So it had to be him. Well, the defense is like, there's all kinds of type A secretors. He was there earlier that night. He never had sex with anybody. But that doesn't mean that this is a nailed, open and shut case just because he's a type A secretor. Well, what do you think? And now it's time for them to dig into Ronnie's alibi. Well, his alibi was that he went out earlier with everybody. He actually owed Kathleen's uh, boyfriend $400. So they were out drinking. They went back to Kathleen's to do some cocaine and smoke some weed and have some more drinks. Just kids being kids in Wisconsin, okay? And he said he gave her the $400 that he owed uh, her boyfriend. And then him and his brother and his fiance, they all went back out. And that was the last time that he saw her. And this was around 9.30 p.m. Well, his whole thing was besides the hanging out, was that he gave her the $400 to give to her boyfriend. Well, there's a little problem with that as the state will tell you. When they searched the crime scene, they did not find any money. They found her money. They found So they found nothing that would look like a robbery. Nothing was taken. But there was no $400 that Ronnie said that he gave to her. In fact, in fact, the very next day, Ronnie deposited a little over $300 into his bank account. What? what? That's when the courtroom, <gasps> gasp. So, the defendant, his alibi, says that he went over there to give her $400, but the $400 was never found, and the next morning he deposited a little over $300. Explain that, Ronnie. Ronnie had a very simple explanation for it. He said he did give her that $400, and she took it, and he doesn't know what happened to it after that. But his brother Steve also owed him some money, so Steve gave him that $300 the next morning, and then uh, he deposited it. Simple as that. He doesn't know what happened to the $400 that he gave her. Well, Ronnie, that seems a, a little fishy. If your whole alibi depends on giving her that money and the money is not there, well, I don't know. But the defense says exactly what I just said. He said 
He dropped off the money. He doesn't know what she did with it. His brother owed him money, so that's where that other money came from. What do you believe in that situation? And now we're heading towards the closing arguments of the trial. So the state's going to close with telling you exactly why that Ronnie is the only person that could have possibly done this. Well, the state's going to close with there isn't any other person that could have possibly committed this crime. They're going to tell you that at the scene of the crime, they found Ronnie's hair, Ronnie's semen, Ronnie's fingerprints. His only alibi was that he gave her $400 and left, but the money was never found. They have an eyewitness that picked him out of a lineup. There's no way that anyone else could have committed this crime. And here's a little tidbit for you to chew on. This suspect, this defendant, had only been out of jail for a little over a year for four counts of rape. And the victim was brutally raped, beaten, and strangled to death. It takes a certain type of person to commit those crimes. So, we ask the jury to find him guilty on all counts. So now it's time for the defense, uh, for their closing statements. And they're going to try to disprove everything the state presented. Starting with the forensics. With the hair. Well, yeah, that could be Ronnie's hair. They don't have an exact match. They say, well, it kind of looks like his hair. But he was there earlier that night. He already admitted to doing cocaine with her earlier. And he gave her the $400. And then the semen. Well, yeah. It was a type A secretor, and so was Ronnie, but so are a lot of people. And then the eyewitness, well, you know the one who was hypnotized? Yeah, the witness said it was hypnotized. I don't know a lot of people hypnotizing people outside of comedy clubs and like office Christmas parties, but the hypnotist, again, I hope his name was Amazing Jonathan or... Rangor the Great, the hypnotist that works with the local PD. But somehow, after being hypnotized, she changed it, the height of the suspect, by almost a foot. And the defense, their expert, said there's no way she could have seen him from that distance at that time of night. So, what do you believe? What really happened? What would your verdict be in this case? Would you believe that Ronnie is guilty? Or is he innocent and just been railroaded by the local PD? Well, this case is going to shock you. I promise you that. So, think about it. Comment. Decide what you would vote as the jury. And tomorrow, we'll have the real verdict and the real story. So, tomorrow, come back and find out what really happened on juror number one. Thank you.